<laughs> got Patrick off guard. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the DDGO Politics Podcast. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Yara, and our special guest for today, Patrick Henningsen, geopolitical analyst, independent journalist, host of his own show on TNT uh, Radio, and a very amazing critic of MSM propaganda, along with Yara, my co-host. So this is going to be a really amazing episode, kind of watching them break down the narratives that we're being currently fed and how and why. So welcome to both of you. Hi, how are you? I'm so excited for this episode. Great. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's great to see you guys. It's the first time I've uh, I've, had, I've seen you guys face-to-face virtually anyway, so it's great to meet you. In this is it, are you taken are you taken aback or are you terrified <laughs> no, you look like you could be sisters actually but um i will take that as a compliment yes so like a one big family it's a family show <laughs> so let's um let's ask you you know a question regarding kind of the, the latest uh bombing of the refugee camp i mean it's been absolutely insane how they've committed this this huge, large, large-scale massacre—the worst that we've seen so far—and yet the media is, you know, not really giving it the same, or not at all, giving it the same kind of coverage that they did October seventh. Um, they said that, you know, they were looking for this senior Hamas leader. And uh, Norman Finkelstein had a had a great tweet today where he said, "Well, if Israel was taken by surprise on October 7th, how uh, did it know who masterminded the attack? So I kind of wanted to talk to you about your thoughts on, you know, especially this attack, which was just one of the largest ones that we've seen so far, just completely, you know, killed hundreds and hundreds of people of those so many civilians and innocent people looking for one so-called senior Hamas leader, which they didn't even know if he was there. And then the story, how it was covered. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on on this latest horrific development. Uh, yeah, two two attacks actually. I think there was a subsequent um, yeah. bombing run uh, or missiles missiles or uh, bombs. I think they're missiles, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, so, you know, if that happened, I just I mean, you get straight into it. If the, if this was a if this was Ukraine, and this is coverage of Ukraine, they would call it a double tap. They would say, "Ah, oh, the double tap. This is what Putin does. Uh, they do a strike. They wait for the, uh, or Assad. This is what Assad does. They wait for the rescue teams to come, the first responders, and then they hit them again. Brutal. Um, so but you don't get any of that sort of treatment with uh, with this one. So, uh, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, we've seen so much uh, de- uh, carnage and devastation in the last three weeks that, you know, we're all becoming desensitized to a degree, but um, I'm just looking at how it's being framed and um, the size of that crater uh, at uh, Jabalai uh, Refugee Camp, 30 feet, 40 feet, maybe 50 feet. So these are real powerful uh, munitions that were dropped. So, you know, they they densely populated areas, very poor people. If you've been to any of these camps, unfortunately I have, been to a few of them and um uh like these are people that are gaza's already well below the poverty line but in refugee camps even further below um the poverty line and these are like generational camps as well so they've been there for a very long time you have generations of people living in the camps very densely populated um 
so i mean what what what, what was the israeli uh occupation force thinking that there wouldn't be high uh civilian casualties so um you know like if if it goes to a war tribe war crimes tribunal just to take this incident for example they would have to show the intelligence or explain how and why they chose this target why it was of high value and also they would also have to do a, a bomb damage assessment saying oh our reconnaissance uh looked at it afterwards we saw if it was a successful mission or not none of this is happening with the uh israeli forces they're just basically indiscriminately using military force uh against civilians they're saying that they're targeting terrorists quite possibly they're uh, the chain of command is a is spreadsheet with all of the targets listed and they all say hamas headquarters i mean how many homes have they hit so far in um in gaza what what is it what is it now 50,000 buildings something like that so are there 50,000 hamas uh command and control centers uh plus the mosques the churches the hospitals the schools the un shelters and and the and the refugee camps um i don't think so it's not credible so there the, there's no statute of limitations for these types of investigations and i think there a lot of these things are going to be looked into but the problem is you know the united nations w- should have had agencies on the ground already by now but they they can't and they're not on the ground so um, my big my big fear and other people's fear is that the crime that this is a crime scene and it's going to be covered in multiple layers of dust and israel is pretty much trying to destroy the crime scene so we're already seeing this right because we've started seeing you know so much censorship and i have a question with you uh, uh to you about that um but just uh, to note here, I noticed they were already tr- starting to take articles down because I don't know if this is a regional thing or not, but an article that I posted the other day was all of a sudden gone and someone had archived it, uh, which is going to be really important for us to do to archive this this war and these war crimes because we can already see what's happening right in front of our eyes. Now, w- when it comes to censorship, we recently saw a video go viral uh, by propaganda and co-account on Twitter and went viral pretty much everywhere um, and outed uh, the IOF for, for shooting and killing their own people on October 7th. Um, and now the person who did this super in-depth investigation and provided facts and proof is now facing death threats, he's getting mass reported, he's getting harassed every day. Um, talk to us about the censorship that you've seen and whether this is this specific conflict is this kind of, how does it compare with any other kind of i guess censorship and propaganda campaigns that you've seen is this the worst um instance of of censorship and propaganda in tandem that you've seen well um no it's well at least on x twitter it's not i mean the worst is the one that that basically had my account and tens of thousands of accounts removed which was the uh covid um vaccine era under jack dorsey at twitter so i was off the platform lifetime ban for 18 months they even sent me an email saying don't try to log on we have your ip addresses if you attempt to use anyone's account it will also be permanently suspended it was a lifetime suspension so you know they were kind of marauding with an iron fist before um so uh ukraine uh which I was I wasn't involved with until Elon Musk 
um, bought Twitter. Uh, that that was that was about the nastiest we've ever seen. Death threats. I don't have to speak for present company, um, myself included, and others. Kill lists, uh, all sorts of things. So that's bad, and and there and it was very personal. It was very personal, as you know. And, and particularly nasty and violent and all the rest of it. And it seemed like one side in the Ukrainian propaganda war was very upset at, at, at anything that would undermine the narrative or the mythology that had been carefully constructed around that side of the conflict, i.e. the regime in Kiev, uh, the, 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 the image of Zelensky, the narratives of you know the the brave volunteers and the Georgian Foreign Legion and all this other stuff, like if you question any of this or Ukraine's ability to you know uh, overcome the Russian Federation in a military fight, you know if you question any of this, you were immediately being attacked or you exposed any crimes on the Ukrainian side and um, pointed out facts. Basically, if you pointed out the fact that people are being cellophaned to lamp posts. Um, in public, then you became an enemy of uh, the Ukrainian nationalists and ostensibly NATO's biggest troll army in history, which was called NAFO. So, and you were relentlessly attacked, mass reported, flooded your comment streams, just polluted and toxified the whole uh, information space. That's what it was designed to do. So having experienced all that, and you, you guys know exactly what we're talking about here. So you're, you, you've been pre-prepared. Well, some of us have been pre-prepared already in advance. So what we're seeing here, this level of division with Israel, Palestine, Christians, Muslims, right, left, whatever, we, we've already been kind of um, already baptized by fire, you could say, in, in multiple information wars. So, um, so I was prepared for this because I've been <laughs> engaged in this issue for 25 years, Palestine. Israel. So, um, so I was, I've already familiar with the, with the divisiveness and the, the, the issues and the depth of it, the different arguments that are made on, on all sides. So, but, um, what, what you have now is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's even worse than post nine 11 Islamophobia It's much worse. So in, in particularly nasty and, uh, the attacks are, um, to someone like myself or you or people that we are colleagues as well. They're very personal attacks usually have to do with, uh, you know, I, I've been accused of being uh, by Americans um, being, a tra you know, you say, are you a traitor? Are you, um, are, do you pray to Mecca? Um, do you, and all this other stuff and getting mass reported by uh, promoting, saying you promote terrorism because you posted uh, a video which was a press conference from the official Hamas uh, political arm, which, you know, like, this is my attitude on censorship is, is that censorship in wartime is, to me, ridiculous because uh, Britain, for instance, censored RT.com. They took the URL and banned the URL in, in the whole country of, of the UK. And uh, in France, they did the same with Rumble uh, because they wouldn't take RT off of Rumble. Rumble didn't cave. And so France said the Rumble URL is banned in France. My problem with this is, and I think it's really dumb, it's a dumb tactic because if you're a diplomat in the UK or you're a journalist or you're a teacher, or you're an academic, and you don't have the number one source of information in the biggest conflict 
arguably the biggest conflict on European soil post-World War II, and you don't have the number one source of information from the Russian Federation with all of their diplomatic statements, the foreign minister, everything, and Russian reports, then you're, you're working from a place of low information. So how can you censor that? You want to you want to look at it, and if it's disinformation or it's propaganda or it's false reporting, you should then be able to call it out and make a whole meal of it on the day, front page of the Daily Mail. But they never did because they couldn't find any disinformation or any false reporting on RT.com. So, and I'm not I'm not here to uh, tout or defend or promote RT.com. Far from it. Um, but what I am saying is that uh, you need that information. You need it to, tri to triangu triangulate your own positions, to calibrate your own diplomacy or positions, foreign policy positions. The same with uh, Hamas statements or reports from Hamas. We're saying it's terrorist propaganda. I was told point blank by the IDF um, uh, in the press conference that don't look at the Gaza F Ministry for Health. They're lying about their death figures. They're lying about their injuries. And and the photos that you're seeing, don't look at those either. Those are uh, those are propaganda because Hamas runs the Gaza Ministry for Health. Are you are you serious? So obviously you can go back and look at other conflicts, uh, the other operations in 2014, 12, 08, and you see similar numbers that you can correlate with the similar airstrikes. And international organizations are getting their information from the same on the ground. Uh, uh, agencies. And they said, yeah, they're absolutely consistent this time with the previous ones. So this not these aren't even arguments. These aren't even legitimate arguments. But this, this approach has been parroted by all the Western mainstream media as well. It's as if the IDF is somehow puppet, puppeteering the entire Western media. How is how on earth is this even possible? But if you look at the coverage of Ukraine, it's pretty much identical. It's the, I mean, it's the same thing. I don't know if you would agree or not, but that's what I felt is that you're getting all these, they're saying, oh, sources in Kiev, sources from the Ukrainian defense ministry. I mean, so you might as well be saying Joseph Goebbels is giving a press conference <laughs> and, you know, be there with your pen, uh, your notebook and pen, you know, like what good is that? It's like being an embedded reporter in Iraq. You know, what, what exactly are you there for? The hardware is cool, very impressive, nice guns, uh, love the press room, great, get to eat chow with the soldiers, but like, what are you there as a journalist for? Like, there's no point. You might as well stay at home and just have them send you the releases. Because that's what- And, it, and I mean, it's crazy. We, we see uh, obviously how Israel on top of, um, on top of just pushing this propaganda, they have an entire public diplomacy strategy with Hasbara, right? To, essentially <clears throat> control and dominate the narrative uh, and just continuously uh, manipulate the information. But it's crazy to me that someone would say that, you know, the, the Ministry of Health numbers are off and the and the footage isn't real. I mean, the, the thing that's different about this time around is that we have access to journalists who are pretty much posting, you know, minute by minute, second by second, what's happening uh, on the ground. And we can see it for ourselves this time. And um, what I love as well is that a, a lot of people this time around, because they're so used to the propaganda and, you know, like you said, you know, we're getting so used to this that they're starting to verify their own information. And this is a really important aspect to this. People are learning how to do that. Um, and there's people, you know, there's verifiers 
on Twitter whose job it is to verify information and track it to its origins that are teaching uh, online and debunking all this propaganda. So um, I guess, you know, uh, and, and just to mention, RT was banned in all of Europe. I can't, I can't access RT out here in Spain. Um, they they banned that, uh, you know, when it comes to Al Jazeera, they call that a state-sponsored whatever um, outlet. Uh, so anyone that's trying to tell the story uh, of Palestine is immediately, you know, just touted as uh, state-sponsored or just completely outright banned like RT was. Um, meanwhile, the big mainstream media, you know, CNN, Fox News, BBC, and so on and so forth, they, we know, we know that they they work together with the government. So it's just it's becoming increasingly obvious. Uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts on how this is going to continue? If there's more and more distrust in the media, which is a good thing, what do you think is going to happen to mainstream media? Well, I um, look main, mainstream media. I personally, I personally. I want to see uh, a, a, not not a perfect mainstream media, but I want to see sort of at least a half honest mainstream media. And here's why: because you have something in a, in America we call papers of record. So papers of record are the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times. You could say maybe not anymore. Uh, the Boston Globe. These used to be referred to as papers of record. So at least when you're doing, you know, you have history, you're looking through in the old days, microfiches. Now it's the Internet and you're doing an academic paper, you're doing citations or something. And you have to you have to nail down certain facts in history. So if the paper of record reports, whether it's Seymour Hirsch or some other Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and they say this happened at my life massacre in Vietnam and that date and. And, and this, these are the numbers according to general such and such. Until that's overturned with new information, that's the paper of record, that's the historical citation. And so those are institutions that last for years, decades, in fact, they're very important for society, some anchor for like the truth in history. So I, I, I think we need, and I think there are still some, there's still some good work like El Pais in, uh, in Spain and Le Monde occasionally in 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 um, in France, but you know the I used to think for Der Spiegel might be, but they're completely <laughs> owned and operated by the uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. It seems like these days, but um, and Bellingcat is partnered with them too, which is extremely disturbing. So, <laughs> so, so the mainstream media is is really important, but the, the, they have shot their own credibility. Um, themselves and the so you have this long drawn out painful bleeding of of credibility from mainstream uh, establishment me media and institutions and it's really their own doing they they've been really infiltrated um, over the decades and any independent journalists or editors within the setups um, those those positions have been identified and and you know information is controlled very tightly um, in some countries more than others. But, you know, be, telling the truth as a journalist, whether you're mainstream or whatever, is kind of a, ri a risky business these days. And so if you're not towing the party line, then you probably just are not going to be employed there, period. That's how you get the BBCs of the world, the Times of London of the world, and the Guardian, which has turned into a deep state rag, basically, <laughs> um, that just does hit pieces about people like you, like us, basically. So, um, so, so, but... But the alternative independent media can act as a counterbalance. So they can act, and 
they can act as a counterbalance and the 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 discrediting of mainstream media gives credibility to independent media if they're doing the job properly if they're like you said uh, uh, about you know fact checking checking the source of information not citing telegram channels as as a, a, you know for breaking news like on some uh, spaces on uh, X Twitter so that that's an important process people I always say to people like you got to do your own fact checking you got to you can't you can't wait for some other fact checker it's someone's going to get it wrong someone's going to have a bias sometimes snopes gets it right most of the time they're they're also pushing a propaganda line but sometimes for some stuff they get it right but you, you just have to check it out for yourself so credibility isn't from the name or the reputation um it is from the reputation but it's not necessarily from the brand but it's from the overall reputation of a news source that they were their their readers or their audience saying overall they were credible over a long period of time so uh like your your sarah your outlet you have a track record you have to defend so is the information you published accurate your your readers and your viewers think so so they're going to stick with you and then when anything big happens they're coming straight to you first to find out because they want to know what you think and there's a lot of independent media outlets that are sort of first time they're the first port of call when a major story breaks, they come straight to them. There's a lot of them now. So I think they've, a lot of people have earned that reputation through hard work, being careful what they publish and, um, and, and being skeptical about stuff. My, like there's also the race to publish. And this is another problem with online is to be the first to get the viral hit, to get the views. And I will always err on the side of caution. And I remember when we started, it was like the wild west. And it was like, you know, independent websites, uh, CPM ad driven, <laughs> business models, infowars.com, and you have all these uh, wildcats. And whoever got the first and got the jump on a story, I mean, that's very lucrative to be the first one. And, and now you, it's, it's worth it just to step back because there's so many other people that there is nothing that will be discovered that, you know, <laughs> like you can't have exclusivity on anything anymore. Literally, it'll just be on a hundred different news sources if it's true. But the fake news travels a lot faster, I've definitely. If it's fake or false, it travels a lot faster, then eventually hits a wall at some point. But what happens is it gets imprinted on people's brains and, and that, that sort of carries the narrative, which informs the consensus, which then gives uh, backing to a policy. So, yeah, we, we've talked about this uh, a few times that, you know, the playbook is very obvious at this point. The playbook is publish it, get all the other big uh, news outlets to pick it up, uh, parrot the same headlines, just, you know, ask chat GPT to write a different headline. That's what it feels like. Um, but basically in the same words, with the same intentions of demonizing Muslims, you know, it's so obvious at this point, once it's out there, once it's in the in the masses, people are not going to wait for the retraction or really be as involved as we think they're going to see the big headlines everywhere. And this is so intentional. And then, like you said, they've made up their mind. Now the narrative is it. Now they're once again in control of the narrative and they're spewing lies. And I actually wanted to bring up um, an example here from the IDF spokesperson, Elon Levy, um, sorry, the Israeli government spokesperson. He posted, and Sarah wanted to bring this up too, that there's, there's, um, uh, pictures that he posted of so-called murdered Israeli children of the kibbutz Be'eri. Um, he says they were tortured, dismembered, and then burned to death. Uh, archaeologists are sifting through the rubble to find their teeth. This was Hamas's October 7th massacre. Um, and a, a dentist 
<laughs> said, finally, I get to put my dental degree uh, to use to debunk these Zionist lies. And um, yeah, he just pretty much one by one, uh, if we can bring up his thread, kind of brought up why this is a complete fabrication once again. And I'm noticing, to be honest, the desperation in the propaganda that they're pushing out, the, 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 the way that the stories are getting more and more obviously, I'm sorry, uh, more and more obviously, you know, pushed uh, with with more obvious lies every time. And now it's taking no more than maybe two, three hours for people to start investigating this because we don't trust the, the, uh, uh, the Zionist regime's propaganda at all anymore. And this is a positive development. We, we don't trust anything coming out of that account anymore. So people are on it with the with the fact checking now. I guess that's something that I haven't seen related to the conflict happen before. And so this is giving me a little bit of hope. Yeah, I wanted to show a video kind of where we see this convergence of how ridiculous their own brainwashing and propaganda is. And um, it, the I think it was Wolf Blitzer on CNN was like, even he couldn't really kind of keep up with it. So Aria, if you have that video of the Scottish guy talking about the um, bombing of Jabalia, if you could put that the on really to abide by the Israeli government to abide by international law. I believe that the Israeli government is continuing to do okay. so against uh, an enemy that hides amongst civilians. It's, it's the terrible nature of this, this appalling conflict. Nope, that was the wrong video, but that's okay. Um, so the the spokesman on that came on and said basically like, yes, we bombed the camp, and uh, we don't know if we killed anybody, and collateral damage is just a part of war. And I believe even Wolf Blitzer was like, so you're saying that it was okay, and they were basically like, yes. So I think it's getting so evil and so out of hand that even our mainstream media is like, whoa, like what, whoa. And Sarah, even Piers Morgan now we're starting to see, not, not saying that this is from the kindness of his heart, but I guess he's starting to see through the lies a little bit because he's been tweeting quite a lot as well about this refugee camp uh, bombing too. Yeah, so he's finally, the, the penny's finally dropping even for Piers Morgan and Wolf Blitzkrieg. Um, yeah, Wolf said, oh, so you bombed them anyway. I remember seeing that clip and the guy said, yeah, we did. So, I mean, even it's so bad, it's even reaching the inner um, recesses of Wolf's heart. Um, having been a career propagandist for, for CNN for so many decades. But um, yeah, so it is, it, this is probably on a, on a level of ridiculousness, the coverage of this. Like, you know, they got off, the, the Hasbara department got off to a lightning fast start, okay? They did very quick out of the gates, not very sophisticated, because this is like the first time I've seen, before when you had fake news out of Syria, they would at least go through to create, you know, some sort of stage scene, or um, the, the, the one I loved was whenever there was a chemical attack, they would take garden hoses and just like, you know, douse the babies with water. And I guess somebody dripping with water, the American viewer would say chemical weapons attack or Arwa Damon sniffing backpacks in a refugee camp in Turkey, uh, trying to get some sarin smell or something and walking around the camp sniffing backpacks. And she gets a, you know, an award for that, an Emmy award. Um, so at least they tried. Now they just say, 
let's just make up a story. Um, 40 beheaded babies. Yep. Uh, any evidence? No. Uh, I spoke to someone who saw it. Okay. Yeah, so you, th that wouldn't even be, you would, they would not be able to run with that before in a newsroom. They, they, they just wouldn't, they'd have to have something, a letter or an eye, a, a, a tearful eyewitness testimony of a girl in a, you know, a woman with a, a babushka with a scarf over her head or whatever, something, but they don't even bother now. So the other one is because mass they rape. know they control the, the narrative. That's why they don't even need to bother. So the three pillars of October 7th that justified the most egregious war crimes are 40 beheaded babies. That's one pillar. The third is mass rape by Hamas. That's the second pillar. Third pillar is uh, the massacre at the music festival. Okay. And then like a fourth pillar you could say is the crispy critter image tweeted out by Ben Shapiro and everybody else and whatever. Like those, those pillars are literally the, the emblazoned in the minds of Americans, Westerners and Israelis as the justification to go all out. Uh, the rules are suspended for warfare. These are human animals, uh, weapons free. And all, all three of those were evidence-free claims. There wasn't even fabricated evidence. There was just no evidence. It was like second, third-hand claims. So how can you possibly run with that? But this is, so this is another level of propaganda, of source, of media sorcery, you could say, whereby no effort is required. You know, not, it's, Colin Powell, Colin Powell went to the UN and at least they they came up with these elaborate drawings of Winnebago's that they were like mobile anthrax labs, very creative, did a little schematic. I, I remember seeing it in the Daily Mail. They do this sort of exploded view of the inside. And it was like, wow, very impressive. Like they went through the effort of designing the hoax. But now they don't even do that. So I think also there's just an, another level of emotive demagoguery with Israel and America and the West is that um, – it's almost it's almost tantamount to blasphemy if a U.S. mainstream anchor tells an Israeli official during a time of war that they're lying or like, where are your receipts? That would probably get you fired straight away. But we did um, find the video. So why don't we play that and then we'll we'll see if we get a different conversation going. Go ahead, Aria. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, move south. Civilians are not involved with Hamas. Please move south. Yeah, uh, I'm just uh, trying to get a little we, bit more information. Uh, you knew there were civilians there. You knew there were refugees, all sorts of refugees. But you decided to still drop a bomb on that refugee camp attempting to kill the Hamas commander. By the way, was he killed? I can't confirm yet. There will be more uh, updated. He, yes, we know that he was killed. Um, about the civilians there, we're doing everything we can to minimize. Uh, I'll, tell, I'll say it again. Sadly, they are hiding themselves within civilian population. And again, we are doing this stage by stage. And we're going to go after every one of these terrorists who was involved in that heinous attack on the 7th of October. Wolf. Lieutenant Colonel, I'm having trouble hearing you, uh, but let me move on. I assume you can still hear me. <laughs> That's as far as Wolf will go. He's not going to push. Yeah, he's not going to. Yeah. But, but I mean, it was, was it was just... pretty clear, right? It, it, 
let's let's just kill everyone um and we don't know if the so-called senior Hamas oh no in two even... sentences we went from i can't confirm that yet to yes we know he was killed to now today yeah. we know last night that they bombed the whole place again so even if he was who knows we'll just assume that he was we'll just assume he was killed yeah he, here's who we do know got killed uh babies a lot of children pulled out of the rubble uh <laughs> again a bunch of evidence for that it's just it's getting tiring how their narratives their, their their little stories that they're trying to create have absolutely no proof attached to them i mean we can look at shani luke right she kind of the, the whole thing with shani luke now took over and so uh this this fake story again that has no no proof behind it that was sent out by isaac Herzog himself that's the source right the source is oh well he said it so it must be true they beheaded her yeah again drawing this isis equivalence i thought when i first heard that story i thought okay yeah this is kind of their second wave the second 40 beheaded babies story that they need now because they understand that they're slowly starting to lose the narrative and um and so now they're going to bring up another beheaded stories let's let's continue equating muslims to these barbaric savages um and and again no proof of what she said at the same time a refugee camp gets bombed uh and there's the telecommunications outage that happened which by the way there's a telecommunications outage again that mm -hmm. we're not really talking about as much um so yeah i'm i mean it's just ridiculous at this point isn't it herzog uh, well, sorry quickly herzog was also the source of the babies in the oven the the latest one yeah the oven that, yeah the oven that got debunked yeah. pretty quickly how long was that which Three by hours? the way this this happened in palestine during the nakba so this actually happened in palestine and there's proof for that back in 1948 right yeah so that's a nice inversion there and what about the al-qaeda chemical weapons guide was that herzog is oh well? we have that here uh, could you could you show that area real quick <laughs> the, the, the chemical weapons who, this who is, is showing material this? which was found on the body of one of <laughs> those sadistic villains. It's Al-Qaeda material, official Al-Qaeda material. We're dealing with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hamas. This is what we're dealing with. And in, the, <laughs> in, and in this material, there were instructions how to produce chemical weapons. This is this so speaks ridiculous. about... Uh, 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 arson and it speaks uh, uh, about uh, uh, when they blurred out it was just a cartoon also this was just a book you can buy on amazon this was just a book you can buy on amazon right and at the same time um yeah. uh, it, it's it's so ridiculous I think uh, at, it was, time, at least they went through the trouble laminating it so you know yeah yeah they laminated it so it must be true right yeah. So, so, so that, so I mean, how many, how and many? And they're the ones using chemical weapons, a uh, white phosphorus uh, proven. Um, they're the ones using that, right? So the irony that can't be missed either. So for the white phosphorus, uh, again, we're back to the real story. The OPCW, they can't send a fact-finding mission on the ground, can they? Neither can the UN because there's nobody allowed in. So again, the crime scene is hermetically sealed, and the bombing. Uh, continues. So many of these fake fake news stories, at what point does the Israeli government lose all credibility in the eyes of the press, but they're, they're not pushing back against them. They're just quietly disavowing or, you know, tiptoeing away from some of these stories. Instead, the, the, there should be mainstream papers going in with hard articles, hard critiques, hard challenges. At every press conference, they should be pulling up 
the spokesperson, the IDF or whoever, and saying, but you lied about that, so why should we believe you now? Like, that's not happening. But, the, but that was, apparently Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East, right? So surely, surely they should be able to handle a, a, a little more aggressive press pool, I would think. But that's totally off the table. Yeah, I mean, we can look at, at the role of, of the U.S. here in kind of exacerbating the conflict and where their geopolitical interests lie, where their financial interests lie. Of course, I mean, this isn't going to change anytime soon, but I guess um, my next question to you would be, do you think that with time, more and more people will be headed to X, which is kind of famously now becoming the platform where you don't get censored half as much as on others um, and where you can find the truth and talk to people about, you know, on the ground about what's happening and hear the story from them, them themselves. Do you think there's a place for X with time to become just a platform of kind of independent journalists uh, that aren't paid by any mainstream outlet to kind of just transform the face of the news yeah i mean it's possible but people said the same thing about youtube 10 uh, 12 years ago and look look what happened to youtube it became a giant censorship farm uh same with facebook so while it's good that it is free um on x twitter now it's excellent and use it as much as possible promote it encourage good behavior uh by the management by users and whatnot. There's something unique about X Twitter is that information, the velocity of information is much quicker and can proliferate a lot quicker than the other platforms, plus the uh, DM features and the comments features. Uh, the fact that it's so integrated makes it uh, unique in that sense. And you can build threads, which you can't do on Telegram and some of the more, which is a more of a linear platform. But like, mm -hmm. listen, when I was off Twitter, uh, Telegram was my lifeline. That's all mm -hmm. I had. So um, as, as well as my website. So I'll encourage independent journalists to you got to own your own media as much as possible. And that's always going to be your backstop, which is your 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 URL. And then you also have to manage all of these other uh, platforms as well. So there's a lot involved and, you know, you do need help and uh, you need a good team. Um, but, you know, the danger you can fall into is you spend more time doing administration than journalism. So that's the big challenge that I have is I like doing journalism, but I find it more and more difficult to get the time to do the journalism because I'm doing everything else like promoting content and marketing. You have to market your own content on across multiple platforms. So but but what I where I developed all my skills and my knowledge base was actually doing journalism, you know, and spending two weeks on one story and going on location if need be and you know just a lot of research heavy research working with other people and stuff like that you know so um and if we don't have time to do that then that that, that the fruits of all the journalism is not going to be as um as pungent the truth is not going to be as pungent and as granular as it could be if um everyone's just doing hot takes on everything this is the big danger um which i think you know substack is great uh, there's a lot of good writing on there as well, um, but that kind of needs to integrate with what people are doing on X Twitter a bit more. And and the the issue that I'm seeing right now with Twitter um, is that a lot of people are kind of using this horrific conflict to build a brand around it and kind of using it to you know 
what's it what we call engagement farm right get get more followers so it kind of pushes away from what's most important here which is to educate concisely um which is to make sure that people are hearing from people that know what they're talking about and not just having these these weird kind of um spaces right where just any idiot basically mm. is allowed up with an opinion right everyone has an opinion but that doesn't make it right and so the, the one thing that i see um that could potentially happen that i'm a little bit afraid of is that people with huge platforms which need to be investigated i tweeted this today but people with you know seven hundred thousand to a million followers or more um pushing their, their opinions onto people as opposed to factually researched, um, you know, information. And so, of course, those accounts kind of dominate uh, what you see on the timeline. Those are the biggest ones. And it, it, it's uh, if those accounts all start doing spaces, my fear is that the people that are doing the work to, to, to you know, really have important conversations, like the one that we're having today, and just really bring experts onto a panel and so on, that that would then kind of just be lost in a sea of of spaces of of propaganda, and um, and that those large accounts, you know, have uh, looked a little bit into some of them. Um, there's some suspicious suspicious stuff going on there, um, so it's it's important, and that's the only fear that I have. I mean, I hope that you know, in 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 a perfect world, of course, we could use Twitter to, you know create our own journalism but at the same time there's always uh, a counter to that and there's unfortunately those are the big accounts with the power and you know get paid by who who knows and it, it kind of becomes something then that maybe people are more reluctant to come on to and speak um so yeah of course a lot plays into this yeah like the in terms of uh, twitter spaces mario um not fall it's got the biggest space or whatever but he's also producing news and he's got a team you know but the the concern there is that there's no editorial standards and so the only thing motivating them to be truthful and accurate would be they don't want to get called out rather than being motivated by an ethos of excellence in journalism the two very different things so there's hence there's a lot of um you know disinformation fake news uh i saw one today that uh, appeared on that feed which was that uh marcia blackburn said this is <laughs> marcia blackburn said there's 500 americans held hostage in gaza i mean anything coming out of marcia blackburn's mouth is automatically suspect so i know that as a journalist by seeing her say crazy things over the years but that somehow that got tweeted out on an account with two million followers uh and a lot of people immediately that gets registered and of course that's going to push the buttons of certain americans aren't they those you know the muslims got 500 americans under their tunnels gonna have to bot turn that place into a glass crater you know that's mm -hmm. that that's the visceral reaction that america and i speak to americans who think like this and who will cite things like that to me after where I've known that they're completely fake after seeing them online. And it is horrifying to see that's how the information space actually works. So, so here's what's happened. Those independent media, the, uh, they've become the mainstream. They, they behave like the mainstream. They produce news like the mainstream. They produce fake news like the mainstream. Their standards are as low as the mainstream's editorial standards have become. It didn't always used to be like that in the mainstream, but it is now. So all they've done is replace the mainstream. If you have a team of people working for you and there's like, you know, half a dozen people, whatever, you can afford to pay 
six people uh, to do this, that, and the other to produce content, surely you could pay one person out of your team to, to do quality control. Surely, right? And to provide source links to everything. It's not rocket science. If you've run, if you managed a blog, you can kind of work out what the basic rules of this are. So to me, it's amazing how people have tried, they tried to contain, influencers try to contain um, information without external links. And then the other one they do is screenshot an article, um, even sometimes without the, without the logo of the actual news source, just a headline, some text, put a narrative to it with no source link. So you, you have to go and physically Google that. People's attention spans are so short, they're not going to do that. So then that prop and that, that stuff propagates really well on Twitter. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it, the more inaccurate, yeah. yeah, the more inaccurate it is, the faster it goes. And there's a reason yep. for that. Because if you if you hit the note correctly and it reaffirms somebody's confirmation bias, they're gonna hit retweet. They're gonna just, you know, they don't even need to look into the story because it it, it reinforces their bias. So what you're talking about, um, Iara, is the conservative influencers who are in the ascendancy, especially with this uh, Israel-Palestine issue. So led by the likes of Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk, Laura Loomer, and of course, they all in lockstep together, Ian Miles Chong, you know, they all in lockstep together pushed out all this dead baby, beheading, beheadings of babies, day of rage and jihad in America, don't leave the home on Friday, there's going to be, you know, Hamas has got sleeper cells, they're going to be activated, it's all going to, that was two weeks ago, by the way. So, and we, we had people crying on the space coming, saying they don't want to leave the house, like trauma. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, a Palestinian kid and his mom were murdered, you know, I mean, yeah. oh, but well, that story you know, barely got any coverage, of course. They yeah, were that's unfortunate collateral damage, you know, um, they're, they're, that's, Sorry. We, we can't validate those uh, um, Arabs and Muslims. No, I'm being really facetious, but that, that's how the attitude is. It's, it's, it's a visceral dislike, fear, and distrust of anything Arab or Muslim that was ingrained into the American psyche post 9-11. But like that mold, that mold, which was carved out after 9-11, it, 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 it ate itself up, it dissipated after the fall of the neoconservative movement. And then this happens, and they just poured a new narrative into the existing mold of the American subconscious. Oh, I was raising my hand because someone in the chat was like, "Where I needed me to raise my right hand to prove we were live." I guess he doesn't believe it, but I proof um, <laughs> of life. I know. Hello, I know. all of us can raise yeah. our, our right hand. I know right people, now we're live. People like to pre-record and then make it look like they're streaming. We mm -hmm. don't do that. So, um, but uh, I did want to ask you, how far do you think it can go? Because the ridiculousness, and I don't know if Area has this clip queued up, but the the clip from the Israeli delegation at the UN with uh, their their newly uh, their new sheriff's badges. Um, Aria, do you have that video? I can't with that video. I, I, I if he doesn't, it. if he doesn't, that's fine. But still, like, how much further can it really go? Like, that's the that's we're so past like delusion and ridiculousness. Um, we've seen now we're seeing Bolivia is is canceling their diplomatic ties. Colombia and Chile are recalling their ambassadors for con consultations. Um, Jordan has recalled their ambassador and has said, don't don't send the Israeli ambassador back to the capital. Um, people is all that they have left is just theatrics on on online. Like how do you is this yeah. are these the dominoes or is this like are we seeing the dominoes start to kind of fall? 
Yeah, look at the UN. That was quite a scene. I'd love to, you know, if, if everyone has to look it up, the UN, uh, Israel's UN um, permanent representative uh, stands up and all the uh, Israeli delegations stand up and they pull out yellow stars and they pin them to lapels, the women to their to their dress or whatever. I mean, that's literally the last card in the deck that you can pull. From um, now on, my team and I will wear yellow stars. We will wear this star until you condemn the atrocities of Hamas and demand the immediate release of our hostages. Sorry, it's just so <laughs> ridiculous. To victimize yourself while your regime is committing a the genocide. The guy next to him from Mozambique is like, what is, what is he doing? Like, if you watch the guy next to him, he's like... Oh my God. Yeah, Patrick, talk to us a little bit more it, about, you know, you talked extensively about them losing the victim card. Let's, let's talk about right. it. Right. So, so what, what he's, what he is doing there in, in uh, argumentative terms, it's, it's a rhetorical hand grenade. So whatever uh, conversation you're in debate, you pull the pin on this rhetorical hand grenade and you throw it in there. And that basically is meant to freeze your opposition. Uh, and then you can sort of plow your way through and just basically own everybody at that point. So the problem is uh, it's completely irrelevant to the conversation. In fact, it's even worse. What they're actually protesting, and he didn't say, but what they're actually protesting is there's some countries that are calling for a ceasefire, okay? That's, that's what they're actually protesting. So if that's the case, and they're not honest about that, but that's really why they're upset. So, so he's saying that calling for a ceasefire uh, evokes the horrors of the Holocaust. So th this this doesn't even work on a basic level of logic, you know. So it's like how could how could calling for an end to death mm -hmm. and destruction be somehow equivalent or equated to the Holocaust? It doesn't. So th they they become they lose their legitimacy in the eyes of their colleagues immediately. I mean, to their base, they might think, oh, look at them standing up. But even their base is probably cringing over that. I, I, there's probably a lot of Israelis and, and uh, Jewish Americans that are looking at that and going like, you know, mm, that's not that's bad, bad look, bad look, you know. So if, if that's the top diplomat from Israel, I, they really don't have a leg to stand on morally, ethically, um, and, and, and backing up any of the things that they've done and their military actions. It, 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 the whole thing is just... I think the, the credibility is collapsing around the world mm -hmm. and it's only being held up by the strength of the United States and its allies mm -hmm. on this. And so they're, so they're really at their final backstop, mm -hmm. I think, globally, because we live in a globalized world. And uh, America, be, because America is not in the ascendancy anymore, the BRICS countries are in the ascendancy. The multipolar uh, uh, orientation is in the ascendancy. So more than ever, and this is the irony, America needs all of these so-called global south countries in order for it to be successful in the future in order for mm -hmm. it to survive mm -hmm. in order for it to thrive they can't afford to have counter sanctions or to be shut out of markets or to be you know given the cold shoulder diplomatically and not cooperating with all these countries so america is sacrificing its soft power at the altar of the uh, Zionist uh, cause, if you will, the ideological Zionist nationalist project. And Israel, th their biggest soft power asset is 
one is that they're the warrior nation. That's their reputation of the IDF, the intelligence services. That A lot of that's been smashed to pieces in the last three weeks. But the big one is that they are a victim, that they're holding back the Arab hordes in the Middle East, in the Orient. I mean, that's the... That's the strength of the Israeli soft power message is that they're a victim nation and people give them the benefit of the doubt so often because of that. And, and we'll even turn a blind eye to war crimes and uh, UN resolutions that are being completely ignored and so forth. But now the world cannot unsee what it's seen. The world can't unsee the horrors of the last three weeks, the bombast, the, the, the unbridled uh, chutzpah by Netanyahu. They can't unsee that. They can't unsee the crimes against humanity. And this is going to take a fatal toll on Israel's soft power, which is that it's the eternal perennial victim. They no longer can claim this mantle. They'll have to act and behave like other countries and observe some semblance of international law and norms. They can't just be an island onto themselves and do as they wish when they wish, which is what they've been used to doing for a long time. So this is going to be a very painful transition for Israel as a country and their in, their reputation internationally. They will not be welcome in a lot of countries now for a long time. That's what's going to happen. And the United States is going to reap a backlash as well because it's their bombs and their money. They provided diplomatic cover in full view for all of these uh, war crimes and this just horrible scenes that we're watching. And, and, you know, they had opportunities to reverse it, to hit the brakes. Nobody's hit the brakes. It's been over three weeks. They had an opportunity. They could have went hard, done the damage, sent the message, and then hit the brakes. Israel's done that before. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying it's better than, in many ways, it's better than what we're seeing now. Because what we're seeing now risks to have a full breakdown in the international system and trust in all institutions, including all the United Nations, all the multilateral institutions. And this is what happened in the run-up to both world wars. So, and then it becomes, there's no point for diplomacy. It's literally Hobbesian state of nature uh, internationally. That is not where you want to be in the modern era with nuclear weapons and the types of weaponry that we have uh, that countries have now that can do just unbelievable damage to human life. And you cannot have a Hobbesian state of nature in this way. It's just mm-hmm. in tears for so many people. So that's uh, that, that's what the U.S. is risking. This is what Israel is risking. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they fully realize it, but there's some I don't people- think they do. But I think also, um, I was talking about this the other day, I think, you know, we need Palestinians more than they need us. Uh, they're, they're kind of leading uh, this global revolution right now. And we're, we're really seeing for the first time, at least in my lifetime, <clears throat> that I'm noticing this, this divide, right, where people are, uh, they're boycotting a bunch of these big companies, their stocks are down, Walt Disney, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, uh, Puma, their stocks are all down right now. We can really clearly see in the stock markets and we can see out in the streets that people do not agree with these governments. And so I think there's a very clear line being drawn. Of course, the Zionists do, but they're indoctrinated. But everyone who has, you know, a couple of brain cells and sees what's going on here does not agree with this. And they're going to go out, they're going to, you know, boycott these companies, they're going to go out and protest, they're going to write to their 
representatives. They're going to try and donate. They're going to try and speak and uh, do their bit to uncover, you know, for example, that dentist uncovering that story. It's it's great to see how people from all backgrounds are saying, nope, uh, this is something that I'm an expert in. Let me debunk this. So I think this is a really good thing. So I guess my my last question to you would kind of be, um, what do you see happening next? So just from your expert analysis, kind of where do you see this whole thing going uh, in the next, you know, month, year, years? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, the first thing I'll say that's important to say is kind of riffing off what you just said, is that there's a gulf between government, uh, mainstream media, and then the people. And there, there, there's, a, there's a difference there. The, the gulf is widening and you can see that th this weekend there'll be twice as many people on the street around the world than there were last weekend. And I've never seen, even for general anti-war protests, I've not seen this type of uh, energy, these types of numbers. I have not seen it, not since the Iraq war. And in some cases it exceeds the Iraq war in some cities. Okay. So this is significant. And over this little uh, state, that's not even a state Palestine, what, this is where the support's coming. Why? Because the people recognize what it is. The media and government are saying this is a religious war. The people know it's not. The people know this is a simple story of oppression and oppressor. And, and you know what? It's always been that story. Everybody who has been engaged in this issue knows that's always been that story. It's been side by side with the uh, liberation struggles of apartheid South Africa. Palestine has always been in the same bracket, but they've managed to reconfigure it through propaganda, through gaslighting to make it into, you know, t a terrorism issue, which is ridiculous. You know, if, if you want to look at terrorism, uh, Palestine isn't the first place I would be looking for a terrorism problem. There's plenty of other places around the world uh, and mainly at the hand of the U.S. and their allies making that happen. But but that gulf is huge. It's just like in 2016. Good good metaphor. Trump, Hillary Clinton. There was a there was a phenomenon called the shy Trumper. The shy Trumper confounded all the pollsters. They do the phone calls. Who are you going to vote for? They say uh, Hillary. Nobody wanted to publicly admit that they were going to vote for Trump because of social desirability. Uh, factor and in-group, out-groups, uh, and it threw off the polls by between, uh, you know, anything from 15 to 35 percent or something like that. So that's why Hillary Clinton was predicted to run by a landslide through all of the polls. Nobody publicly wanted to say they were going to vote for Trump. Then the penny dropped, and when it did, it was a big, you know, hard thud, and, and it shocked the world and shocked people. And so this is a this is a byproduct. This is the paradox of living in a heavily propagandized and politicized society is that you will get this gulf and it will be bigger and bigger. And, and what happens when reality finally hits, it's heavy and it's hard and the, it's a swift uh, and fast judgment. And this is what's this is what's happened. This is how, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes collapse. This is how societies break down is when that gulf becomes too big, too much corruption, too much uh, polarization, too much political polarization, too much propaganda and lying uh, by the media outlets and, and the politicians and everyone's in on the lie, but the people know the difference and the people know the truth. And that's when things get really, I, I think I would be worried if I was in power, if they think that this is a sustainable system, because they're literally out telling lies, even after they're not even interested in what the truth is. Russiagate 
is a perfect example. How, how could how could 60% of America believe that somehow the Russians put Donald Trump into office in 2016? And yet they do. And on the back of that, they built the most toxic foreign policy uh, you can imagine uh, against Russia with Ukraine and so forth. That's, that is really threatening the stability and the prosperity and the destiny of the United States itself. A lie a lie that was allowed to promulgate. So the same thing with Israel and uh, October 7th. All the main pillars are, are fabricated. All the, all the outrage Americans feel is not justified. It's emotional outrage based on propaganda. And so they've greenlit the most heinous war crimes you can imagine live on television based on fake uh, fabricated stories that aren't real. So people think, oh, my emotional reaction is real. I'm afraid of Hamas. We need to we need to snuff out this terrorist threat and whatever and how my feelings are valid and and the Holocaust and this and that and you start throwing out all these terms, but like what where are you getting this reaction from? Based on what Hamas did what, and then you you start to deconstruct it to them and you break down uh, Yara what you're talking about the things that you talk about in your spaces and um, and also Sarah as well, and and then you you can even have that whole process. Uh, and, and and cleanse their mind of the toxic fake news and propaganda and they the, but the emotions are still there they're real to them they don't care that it's been debunked they the, the the job has been done the work has already been done now we understand how the the worst atrocities in the world have taken place because the irony is there's never been a genocide in history that wasn't actually built on lies you need lies to justify the worst crimes against humanity. That's the irony of it all. You cannot, there is no time, you cannot show me a time in history where there was some awful crime against humanity or some god-awful atrocity done on an industrial scale that was based on the truth, that wasn't based on some kind of propaganda, some kind of egregious blood libel. And that's the story throughout history. Why would it be any different today? But people think, you know, well, and, and today's past- different, you know. Yeah, and, and in the past, you know, the what they didn't have was so many people starting to archive this information. I talk about this all the time, the importance of us archiving stuff. Um, you know, not even Israel believes their lies anymore. Uh, I had a, a video that, of Israel's ambassador to Australia uh, with the little Freudian slip there. I don't know if we can get it up, but he said himself, we are not the victims. I mean, just, you know, everyone knows what's going on at this point. You can't, you can't deceive people. People have the right to the real information. Um, and I think one thing that a point that needs to be made about, you know, these these big so-called citizen journalists, um, literally engagement farming just atrocities around the world to build their platforms. It's it's insidious. It to me as a journalist, as someone who really loves journalism and and loves, you know, uh, the, the ability to spread the truth and to, to be a morally right um, a journalist with a moral compass. Um, it, it's really infuriating to see how people, you know, you know, there's there's the Krasenstein brothers that were their their entire accounts were built on a, a Justin Bieber fan base account before they changed <laughs> it around, right? Like that's that's actual information out there for people to find. Mario Nafal has a very suspicious past in the blockchain space as a crypto scammer 
and now kind of just changing that um, to all of a sudden I'm a citizen journalist uh, building my platform all of a sudden you know I'm, I've got all these big guests shaping a narrative with 20,000 plus people um, of which by the way a lot of these accounts are just completely botted so it is important that we do a little background check on the people that we're listening to on spaces that we understand. Uh, look, just just, who just they a are. caveat. Yes, I can't yes. I can't confirm uh, any of there's a lot of accusations about different people. I personally don't have any knowledge of any of that. Um, what I will say is uh, those people you mentioned, um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some, you know, uh botting going on and uh you know cloning or using a, a repurposing a Justin, all of the information a, a, but you know repurposing a justin bieber account to make you appear like there's five hundred thousand people that give a toss about what you think about world events is quite an extraordinary thing in itself so that doesn't surprise me at all if that's the case yeah no, no, this I mean, is all out there all of this information is out there well um What's next then? Do we see, do we get our ceasefire? Does this war break out? Does it become a regional war? What happens? Is Russia, Ukraine somehow like, what happens next? Cause I, I'm not really a, a doomer, but I, I don't know if we're quite on the precipice of world war three, but it feels weird. Um, but yeah. I, I also think that there's part of them, part of the, the Western allegiance that's very hesitant, like we're holding back. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, my my biggest fear, of course, is that um, Israel is a nuclear power. That's my biggest fear. And Seymour Hersh's Samson option, that that's whole whole story. That does scare me. Uh, because what would Israel do if it backed into a corner to its neighbors, for instance, or to Iran? And that would set off a, ch a chain of events that are uncontrollable at that point, and nobody would even care how it started at some point. And, and, and so, but what I, what I can say, what I know about for sure, I can't predict the future, but what I can say is this. Um, I, I, I recently heard uh, a lecture by Alistair Crook, who's a, a former British diplomat, who's excellent and very fair and even-handed. And he said um, his, his uh, associates just got back from northern Israel, and it was a ghost town. Whole towns are empty. They've been evacuated on the border with South Lebanon. Uh, kibbutz is empty. So what that tells me, and I, I always look at the politics and I look at changes, and that's a change because that means that people living in Israel are not confident in the state's ability to protect them in their sort of pioneer outpost settlements um, in, in host, quote, hostile territory. So that, that to me is significant. That, that's a big signal because I've also uh, been to Syria during the war and spent a fair enough amount of time there um, to to realize the resiliency of that country that had everything thrown at it from the most powerful nations in the world over a decade, okay, and they're still there, and they and even though they haven't even regained control of their country yet, but they they somehow stabilized the core of their country when they had nearly lost it, and and so that level of resilience you see in Syria, you see it in Lebanon. The resilience in Syria is based on uh, communal relations between families and cities and towns. P everyone helps each other. People take the homeless in, you know, if they belong to a family that they know. This is like not unusual in Syria. 
Now, in America, it that was very unusual that the country in a crisis would just absorb everybody within households. And the, mm -hmm. and the most amount of IDPs in Syria and other in some of these countries um, are, are, are all taken care of within the country itself. So the people that left Syria were people who were against the, quote, Assad regime, mm -hmm. uh, people who were in, more along those lines. So um, I see the same level of resilience in Lebanon, who's been through an incredible amount of civil wars, diversity and uh, crises and collapses. They find a way. I don't see that level of resilience in Israel. Um, because again, they've the, the deterrent strategy that Israel has relied on for so long, it does seem to be cracking. So that, to me, is a, a a variable that 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 will change, that could potentially change the situation at some point down the road. I see Jordan as well. Um, mm -hmm. There are cracks within Jordanian society that are very visible with the with the power structure and how that country is run. It's really on a knife edge. Egypt, same thing. Um, it, it's not sustainable. And I think the Arab population is not, the Muslim population in general uh, in the region and globally are not going to accept uh, in the long run. They might have to suffer and watch the horrors of Gaza, but they're not going to accept the results vis-a-vis uh, -vis their leadership in the long run. I think it's the, 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 the wheels have already been set in motion for future change. So, and how that's going to play out in terms of combat or uh, in ter terms of a war, the only real game changer militarily, there's two game changers militarily that I see. One is that if, um, if Russia somehow has a disagreement with Israel, whereby they will supply S-300 and S-400s to Syria, because that will transform the entire that, that, that means that the IDF can't use Lebanese airspace to, to constantly hit Syrian targets. And because air defense is the ultimate equalizer in this situation with regards to Israel. So, but that's a point of negotiation between Russia who has its own relationship with Israel. But Russia has interests in Syria. Russia's uh, 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 partnering with Iran on many things. And if that becomes an issue, then that's a game changer that could change the orientation of the, the, the power dynamics of the region. Egypt as well. If the uh, government in Egypt somehow finds religion and realizes that this is unsustainable or is overthrown or something like that, that is a game changer as well. There's, there's a lot of potential game changers in the region. I honestly can't predict how it's going to go. I do know that Israel ha is facing a lot more uh, asymmetric adversaries than ever before. And why they won conventional wars in the past against the Arab countries, I don't think it's this going to be the same this time. And it's already shaping up to look different. So, and I don't think they're equipped for that. So, but then we have nuclear weapons to think about. We have the United States being drawn into uh, a confrontation with Iran, which all bets are off at that point. What happens? So, um, I'm not going to pretend to be able to predict uh, how any of this is going to go. I can just look at the behavior and the, the 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 past behavior and try to understand how people might react in certain situations. That's it. And what's more important is how the people are going to react. Forget yeah. about militaries. What, how, how are the people going to react? That's what's that's what's not being talked about and generally not talked about in the Western press. And I think that's an important thing to pay attention to. And you, you raised a good point at the beginning of the conversation about, you know, weeks and weeks of this war now desensitizing people. And um, for anyone listening, you know, don't let yourself be desensitized by these images. Um, you have to continue, you know, 
pushing out the reality here. We are in a, a, a huge information war right now, and it's going to be really important that we don't just skip past this information or this horror, these horrors that are being committed, absolutely sickening horrors. Um, we need to continue speaking up about this. And I thought it would be a good kind of wrap to show you the, the little Freudian slip the Israeli ambassador had um, if, uh, if we want to play that real quick. Um, I'm also upset then... that uh, uh, since uh, October the 7th, uh, the focus uh, at the moment is uh, on the other side. Mm. Uh, people are trying to suggest that there is some sort of uh, moral equivalence. There is no moral equivalence. We are not the victims. Sorry, we are the victims. We are not the aggressor. Sorry. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> Straight Freudian, from the horse's mouth. True Freudian slip, if there ever was one. There it is. Yes. So, it, yeah, that says it all right there. Yep. If the penny's going to drop. We're uh, Well, I just received this letter from ISIS on ISIS letterhead that says we are best friends with Hamas. So um, it's official. I'm going to forward this to the IDF and the Israeli spokesperson. And now we know it's factual. Hamas equals ISIS. And I think that we're we're done here. So, Patrick, why I, don't you tell us? I could have told you that without the letter, Sarah. <laughs> I, I, if you subscribe to ISIS's newsletter, I saw someone on Spaces quoting ISIS's newsletter. I'd say, are you serious? Like uh, they still have a know, newsletter. Good for them. Apparently, for them. it's 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 distributed by Intel Center or you know Jihad Watch or whatever. Pam Geller's uh, one of her organizations. I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you read, if you subscribe to ISIS's newsletter in English, um, you would have had a heads up on all that. So yeah, that's all it takes. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's evidence right there. You should send that to uh, President Herzog. Well, the the laminate it there. Laminate yeah, the it. Said I have to laminate it or it's not official. So I'll get this laminated and then I'll put it on Twitter. Uh, Patrick, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you um, outside of here? Yeah, my, our, our hub uh, is 21stCenturyWire.com. That's a website I uh, started uh, as a blog in 2009. And we do a weekly show, omnibus show called The Sunday Wire, an audio program, which I'd love to have you on, Sarah, hopefully, if you're available. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and also, uh, um, so a 21st century wire, the Sunday wire and TNT radio Monday to Friday, um, five, 12 till two, roughly that time zone, Eastern standard time, uh, five till seven UK time daylight savings going to move back to, uh, uh, 11 to one and four. This has six. messed up my week so bad. Cause all, she's in Europe. All of our guests are in Europe and I'm yeah, like, well, don't even start. It's the most annoying thing. Why don't they just have it on the same day? I don't get I it. It has to be so bad for like businesses and stock exchange. It must be insane for like a week. I was, I was told it was to protect the American kids during on Halloween when they that's what I was told. Yeah, really? <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Right, so you heard that as well. Okay, maybe we're talking to the same, uh, <laughs> same people, you know. I did hear that. I'm not even kidding. All right, well, we're gonna go start a space, and I'm sure Patrick will wander in. Also, Patrick, tell them about our musical guest tonight. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring uh, Joseph Arthur, who's a you know pretty well known uh, recording artist and uh, played with all the big guys, and uh, he's he he uh, uh, has done a single called Ceasefire Now which which you just we just kind of 
hatched the idea on Saturday night on his show, and then he pre he performed, produced, and uh, arranged it. It's a beautiful, beautiful track with a video, and um, so I'll bring him on your space, and we'll talk mm -hmm. about it. I'd be able to play the song if it works through the uh, our soundboard here, um, but 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 I, I like it because it it um it it, it it the message in it's pretty pretty clear. And like we were talking about you guys before, how is it controversial to ask for a ceasefire? in a violent war anti-semitism anti-semitism insane is crazy the whole thing's upside down at the moment so the is the, the artists the poets the writers the musicians they can say more in, in a little vignette than we can do in three hours of spaces or whatever so we need we need more of them to, i to love step that up. bringing the musicians back into the anti-war movement beautiful thing mm. Well, thank you, all of you. Yes, he will play it live, or we will we will have it played over the space major hydraulic. Um, thank you both for joining me, Yara. I love you, Patrick. You're just okay. I'll see you both <laughs> in the space later tomorrow. We have Kavork, so we'll talk about all things Syria, and then Sunday at some time to be determined. We will have Elijah Bagnier, uh, and next week hopefully a big surprise so thank you guys and if you haven't watched it watch marwa's episode yesterday she will be with us on friday to discuss the speeches with nestrala for a live q a so thank you both and we will see you guys all tomorrow